And well, as I go this morning, if you have any questions about the sermon, the passage, or the topic, uh, you will notice that there will be a, a, a phone number on the screen on the bottom right-hand corner of the sermon slides that you can text in that, num- that question that you have. And I will do my best to answer that question at the end of the sermon before we move into uh, communion. It's something we do every week here. It's one of my favorite parts of it for both selfish reasons as well as like, man, I just think this is so good for us as, as a community. Um, and speaking of as a community, I want, uh, I'm starting with something that will require your participation, okay? So I want to ask you to finish the sentence. It's going to be a pithy sentence. Trust me, it's not going to be, you're going to have to read my mind. These will be familiar to you. I want you to finish the sentence that I begin. Okay, you ready? Okay. What comes around? If at first you don't succeed. If mama ain't happy. Okay, now one more for you. Behold, how good and pleasant it is. <laughs> Precisely. I, I, no, well, kind of. Kind of. Because, because I, I did that because verse 1, commentators think, is exactly like those other sentences to its original audience. It would have been a, a proverb or a pithy saying that represent is just kind of packed with meaning because of the way that a culture and a community uses those words. They're intimately familiar to that community, and they're just packed with meaning. And because, and they become known across a community or across a culture because they resonate with that culture. So Israel, the original audience of uh, David's psalm here, would have agreed when he said, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The word good is, is, is not just like, well, this is like the right decision or like an ambiguous, this is the good answer. It's more of like a flourishing, a blessing. Like this is, this is the thing that, that humanizes us, that is good from, like a, from God's perspective. And then when he says how pleasant it is, he has more of an aesthetic tone. It's more of our like our experience of that goodness, how satisfying, how pleasurable, how exciting unity is. Do we agree with that? How many of you are like, oh, Brad's preaching on unity this morning. I'm so glad I got here and on time. Does it have the same ring to it as if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? Does it have the same resonance as what comes around goes around? Like, let me, let me actually, before I even ask any kind of more uh, to, to dig into that, let me, let me clarify what unity isn't, because I think there's some misconceptions around this word unity and what it means and how that works out practically. <clears throat> I don't mean by unity the, these counterfeits, right? What I don't mean is, is a force unity, which is a kind of legalistic or a co- maybe a coerced conformity where everyone is behaving in exactly the same way and doesn't admit that we might believe differently. I'm not talking about the kind of house of cards that is built when everybody's on eggshells walking around hoping nobody catches if they step out of line. I'm also not talking about this kind of fake unity, right, that is this sentimental or superficial surface-level relationship, right? I have mentioned before, I'm, I don't like small talk. It, I'm actually just really bad at it. Like, that's the primary reason. But also, I'm more at, instead of, like, talking about the weather, it's like, let's talk about geopolitics in Eastern Europe. That'd be awesome. Like, I, 
That doesn't make me more virtuous. It's just like, actually, I don't know how to do that because it's also exhausting to stay on the surface all the time. It's also the thing that's hardest to get past when we are engaging with and, and trying to love our neighbors as ourselves because like, man, your flags on, my, on your lawn look very different from the flags I have on my lawn if you even have any flags, right? Like, how do we, how do we coexist? We, we don't have those muscles as a society and a culture. I'm also not talking about a false unity, this kind of peacekeeping that says we need to stuff or avoid our differences or act like it's not a thing, right? What are the three things that, that you're not supposed to talk about it over, over dinner? Money? Oh, I thought it was sex. Okay, cool. We can talk about money? Sweet, okay. Politics, sex, and religion, or maybe money. Maybe, maybe there's four things, okay? Um, unity doesn't res- resonate with us partly because we, we confuse it with these counterfeits, but honestly, I think mostly because we live in a culture that is highly individualistic and sees disunity as an outright virtue. Unity in our modern American society is, is far more of a vice than a virtue. Think about it this way. Think about the, the language and the categories that we use when we are celebrating something, when we are saying something is good or, or we are, are pointing something remarkable out. Right? If we say someone is a, a, a maverick or uh, maybe a rebel with or without a cause, um, we are saying that this is someone who is breaking conventions and breaking out of social norms to pursue personal freedom and that that is the thing that we should aspire to. Right? Like even, I mean, like I'm a fan of Star Wars as much as the rest of us, but it's a reason, there's a reason why that movie resonates with our cultures because we think the rebels are always the good guys. And in that movie, yes, they are. Don't worry, I'm not like going to start playing the Imperial Death, uh, uh, the Imperial March as part of my sermon or anything, okay? When we talk about a, a technology or a business, maybe, uh, as disruptive, that's a good thing, right? It's, it's, it's shaking up the status quo. It's, it's, it's describing a profitable innovation, either in the way that we do business or the product that has been invented, and the cost of that is instability, but that is at least a very acceptable cost, isn't it? Some of you may be familiar with what's called the, the Leave Loud movement, which is describing um, those who see as their last resort leaving an organization or a community to bring attention to a problem within that institution. Now, this is very much intended to be a good thing that is actually for that institution, even as they're leaving. But in our world and with the incentive structures that are surrounding us, it's actually distressingly easy to very quickly abuse that and, and for that to become performative because we praise this. It draws our attention. We celebrate it. All of us have heard about how our our, our politics are negatively polarized, right? That means that we are, we are drifting, not just drifting, we are forcing one another and forcing ourselves further apart. That is describing and is the result of anti-visions, de- de- defining what we are for primarily or exclusively by what we are against. And it precludes cooperation even if our shared interests are, are furthered by it. Also, right, is there anything worse than being the establishment or an elite? 
well, maybe one thing, and that would be right, being one of the sheeple who follow them, right? Disunity is a virtue. Okay, we were doing a back and forth. Let's do it again. I got, I got more, okay? You do march to the beat of speak your reject the oh, sorry, status quo. Okay, that was a little hard. Break the take the road different strokes for ruffle there buck the oh or buck the system that was a good one i didn't have that one buck the trend good rock the <laughs> yeah darren rock the house <laughs> awesome fly solo well done that was i was i was I underestimated you. Okay. Um, go against the, stir the color outside, blaze a, all who wander. By the way, I hate the way that one's used. If you actually understand the original poem it's from in The Lord of the Rings, let me put my uh, taped glasses from Tolkien on. Um, it means the opposite of what it's used to mean. Take a... Take a hike. Ooh, that's good. I'm going to pray for you this morning, Chris. It's cool. Uh, take a stand. You can take a hike, too. Somebody's thinking about the mountains. That's cool. Um, and the all-time worst, let it, let it go. Okay? I, do you see how, like... This is ingrained in our culture and society. We don't, it's in the air we breathe. It's in the water that we are swimming in. I want to introduce something to you, an alternative. Um, it's this principle called Chesterton's Fence. This is another taped glasses nerd moment. But um, G.K. Chesterton, who was also a friend of Tolkien's, coincidentally, um, wrote in his book, The Thing, in 1929, he says this, There exists in such a case... A certain institution or law, let us say for the sake of simplicity, a fence or gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes happily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this, let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Take a hike. <laughs> then, when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. It's not just that, Je that, that Chesterton's fence is in our rearview mirror. It's, it's, we don't even remember that that might have been a virtue at one time. And he was saying this about American culture in 1929. So if you think that our kind of anti-establishmentarianism, which is way too many syllables for a word that, that means individuals, individualistic, um, if you don't think that that is, is, is a thing for us, it has very deep roots that are not even remotely recent. We need to, like, we need to tear down Chesterton's fence like an alcoholic needs another drink or an addict needs another hit of heroin. I am hammering on this. I am staying here for a, for a moment and, and deconstructing some of our assumptions because we, do, we dramatically underestimate how much individualism shapes the way that we read a simple three-verse psalm in Scripture. 
that until we dismantle that as our filter or our lens and, and, and name that as a blind spot, it actually makes it really hard to appreciate the very good and very pleasant thing that David is talking about, which is unity. So now that we have dismantled that, and you're going to be thinking about all kinds of other sayings that, that I could have used on that list um, for the rest of the sermon, but resist, because there are three things that, this, that unity is in a, even a three-verse psalm. The first is this, it's that unity is a family. Unity is a family. David says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. As um, Michael mentioned and pointed out even before he read this scripture, this is another psalm of ascent, which means it's something that would, be, would have been sung as God's people are coming back to Jerusalem once a year, on a, on a yearly anniversary, you might even say. Cool. Um, they'd be coming together and on a pilgrimage that would also functionally be a family reunion. Because your extended family that may not live in the same town anymore, is all, they're all coming to be, together to meet in Jerusalem. Matching t-shirts optional. Now, when I say that unity is a family, I, whew, man, I understand that that's, that comparison isn't always good news for us. Right? A lot of us come from families that are, are, are broken and are not good or pleasant in our experience. Me, personally, my, my family is ba- in, in so many ways defined by disunity. My parents divorced when I, I was in, well, depending on when you say that that actually was finalized. My mom left my dad while he was away on military service um, when I was in the middle of second grade. And the divorce was not finalized, and custody was not given until for two and a half, three years after that. Um, as far as extended family goes, my grandfather on my dad's side, we didn't know that he had died until one of my aunts happened to stop by the family cemetery and plot and saw his headstone. A year and a half, two years later. Even now, my uncle... Uh, who passed away two years ago, there is an ongoing lawsuit between his living, his surviving siblings about his estate. I get how much family may not be good news when I say unity is a family. So does David, right? Israel's first king was a guy named Saul. And he did such a terrible, a terrible job that God told his prophet at the time, Samuel, hey, I want you to go to this man named Jesse because from among his sons, I am going to show you which of them will be the king that succeeds Saul because he's not going to be king forever. And so Samuel goes to Jesse and he says, okay, line up your sons and... and um, Jesse lines up his sons in front of each one. You know, Samuel's like, kind of like praying silently to God, like, is it this one? Nope. God says, nope, it's not that one. Okay, he goes down the line. And you know they're, also, they're definitely ordered, you know, by likelihood of, of who Samuel's going to pick, right? With the oldest, you know, to the youngest, and maybe they're even about, you know, that, that, that level line going down in height at the same time. And Samuel's like, gets to the, to the seventh one, and he says, and God tells him, like, nope, not that one either. And Samuel's confused because there's nobody else. And he goes, he says, Jesse, like, like, that's kind of a dumb question, Jesse, but like, are you sure this is all of your sons? 
And Jesse says, well, I mean, it's not all of them. I have one more, but trust me, he's not the one God chose. His own father so disregarded his value, he functionally did not treat him as a son. Division and disunity was a hallmark of David's experience of his own personal family. And so why then does he say, behold, right? Whenever you see in scripture the word behold, it means savor. Look at this. This is amazing. Like David is ecstatic. He's even more enthusiastic and hyperbolic in his language than I am. And that's saying something. How could David be excited about brothers dwelling in unity? It's because he found a brother in a guy named Jonathan. We're so uncomfortable with the level of unity uh, that, that... and, and, and love that Jonathan and David had for each other as friends, that they may as well have been brothers, that we often think that this is a same-sex relationship because we as a culture do not understand the depth of friendship and it is actually another symptom of our individualism that we think that that is actually a sexualized relationship. And it's not. It's friendship. It's covenant. It's unity. How pleasant, how pleasurable that is, how good that is. No wonder the pendulum swung. He had a brother as good as his brothers were miserable. Unity is a family, but even more specifically that than that, it's a redemptive and redeeming family. Unity is a redemptive and redeeming family. That means it's not a perfect unity. It means that it's a messy and hard-fought unity Because we are bound together not by our agreement, but by the covenant relationship God initiated with us as his family. And if anything, he has given us a spiritual family to enjoy and be enjoyed by, especially when our earthly family is not good and not pleasant. Okay, that's number one. Number two, unity is a calling. Let me read verse 2 again. It says, It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. If you are wondering this morning whether for the sake of having a live sermon illustration, I put beard oil in my beard, I intended to and forgot. But pretend I did. Pretend this is a a lavish and lush, even more so than usual, expression of my own masculinity. Okay? That is kind of what's going on here, but very, very different. It's it's nowhere near as awesome, actually, which is saying something. Um, The beard oil that I intended to use in my beard is like, I don't know, like eight bucks for two ounces that you put on your hand or whatever, and you can buy it anywhere or what, what have you, especially on Amazon. This beard oil that would have been used for Aaron's hair and beard was a a unique recipe that was reserved only for the high priest and was only used on the day of his anointing and on the day of his consecration as high priest. That means it was a huge deal that it was expensive, it was lavish. It was a special occasion. And what it symbolized, especially, did you hear the language of running down on the beard, running down on the collar of his robes? What that is describing is a blessing and a calling. 
that to be God's anointed means to be so lavishly prayed, to be so lavishly blessed by God in and through your calling that there's extra. Like it's just, it's like, like, like another difference between then and now is that like if I had beard oil on my collar, that'd be just like, mm. and you'd be right to like turn your lip up to that. It's just, ugh, it's messy. The point I'm trying to make here is that when we see this, this lavish, gratuitous grace being poured out for a purpose, it is, uh, it is foreshadowing and prefiguring Jesus as our high priest. Take a listen to this in Ephesians chapter 2. The calling that Jesus had in becoming our great high priest on the cross says this, for he, Jesus, himself is our peace. Not just he effectuated peace or made peace, he embodies it. He is our peace. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and made us one with him, in other words, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Hostility is the opposite of unity. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, check this out, one new man in the place of two. That's what we're talking about when we say that we are in Christ, as we are together with him, singular, unified. So making peace and, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So if that is true, if, that's, if Jesus is our great high priest, then that means that the church is our holy priesthood. Peter says it this way, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, singular people. We are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What? My point is this. We need to be reconciled to one another. And we need to be reconciled to God. And Jesus is the great high priest that made that happen. And so he has spiritually accomplished and secured what we need. And therefore, all that's left is for us to live it out. It's for us to manifest that peace that we have with him, in him, in our daily lives. You might think of, um, like, picture the church as a priestly embassy. Like, instead of ambassadors, we're priests, but it's still an embassy together. That's what it, when, when uh, Peter says to proclaim his excellencies, that means that we, as a church, are called to represent God's interests in the world and reconcile people to God. First, by the way, that happens between us, one another. And yes, ultimately, for the sake and the good of our neighbors, for God's glory, but it starts with his family. An implication of that, like here's what I'm saying. If that's our calling, then that means that disunity is not a roadblock to our calling, it's the mission field. Disunity is not the thing we're supposed to figure out how to get around or overcome. It's the place we're supposed to go into with the peace of Christ that he has spiritually accomplished and secured. Otherwise, right, it, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be called to reconcile except where there isn't reconciliation already. So how do we do that? There are many ways that we can probably 
proposed as solutions for society, for other people, but let's just keep this limited to us, shall we? Just two things. One, carry one another's burdens. Carry one another's burdens. When, when Israel would ascend to the temple, both on that, that annual day, but also during the regular uh, rituals and liturgies of sacrifice, they would bring their sacrifice to the temple, and while they're offering that sacrifice as a burnt offering, the priests would be like, hey, how's it going? Like there was like a, a shepherding conversation. There was a, a catching up. Yes, they're probably talking about the weather like we were talking about earlier. And I don't know whether they enjoyed the small talk or if they're like, let's get past that like, uh, like I do. But they would also be like, hey, I heard your aunt passed. How are you guys dealing with it? How's, how's it going? Do you need anything? Yeah, I can talk to the Levites. They may have some extra food for, uh, for, for your nephews and nieces if, if they're, they're in need of some, right? There were... It wasn't just checking a religious box when they brought their burnt offerings and sacrifices. It was actually opportunity for God's people to care for one another and to bear one another's burdens. So carry one another's burdens. And secondly, I like the way Abraham Cho uh, summarizes. He says, break bread across differences. Break bread across differences. In other words, be hospitable, show hospitality. Here at the table, like it's in the name, right? But what we mean by hospitality here at the table, what we mean is a relational and creational generosity out of what God has given us. And he has given us peace, it says. He has given us Jesus. He's given, he's given us himself. How can we not be relationally and creationally generous with, with the, the most beautiful, good, and pleasant unity we have in Christ? Which means the church, too. Like, if you, let me put it this way. Uh, if you're at all nervous about, like, bringing up God with your neighbors, just bring up church instead. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Welcome to me being a pastor. <laughs> like, oh, why? <laughs> okay. If we see the church the way, G, the way David sees unity as good and pleasant, how could we, we would feel selfish not to. And if we don't see the church in that light, it, let's, let's dig into that. Let's break bread across that difference. You'll be surprised. Like, even if you're skeptical of the church, never mind Jesus, um, when you experience this kind of hospitality, because you can't extend it unless you've received it first, right? When you experience that, though, it turns differences into assets instead of liabilities, uh, Hebrews 13, verse 2, says, uh, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I have not done the exegesis to understand, like, how literal does he mean it? But at least, let's just say it's at least metaphorical. The word angels is literally translated as messengers. In other words, when we show hospitality to strangers, to those who are different and unknown or needy to us, then we can hear from God that it is in difference that grace becomes most profound and delivered and therefore received. And if strangers, if we are called to show hospitality to strangers, like people who are needy and unknown to us, then how much more are we called to show hospitality to siblings whose differences are a blessing and not a burden in Christ? 
So let me ask, like, are you, like, are, would you say that you are deeply involved in the lives of those who are very different from you? Maybe, honestly, like for those of you who are like just showing up here this morning, checks that box, bravo, you have no idea. Like everything I'm saying right now is we actually need you maybe more than you need us, or at least as much, because you can tell us something about God in the ways that you are different from us. That is incredible. Like only, only grace big enough for that could come from God. Grace big enough for that could only come from God. Let me actually also, while, I'm, while we're talking about this, like this is what our entire vision for community groups revolves around. So if you want to be, if you want to discover that kind of community, you want to be a part of that, please definitely stop by the, the connect table on, on, the, on your way out and talk to Maria. She'll, she'll hook you up. If you have questions about that, you can talk to her or Michael. They'd be happy to talk to you. I'd be happy to talk to you. And I just want to make a plug here specifically that, like, I know in a place as exhausting as Boulder County that, that we, we think that a community by affinity or life stage is easier, and I want to tell you, you're right. But it's not better. It's not better. If we understand, not as individualists, but as brothers, how good and pleasant it is to dwell in unity, then we would be sprinting toward community that is most different from us. Because you know what's incredible about that community and why that's so satisfying? It's because when people are different from us, accept us, it means more. It means that they're not accepting us because we're easier for them. That's it, that's a two-way street. Okay, let me move on to our third point and after this, we're gonna jump into the Q&A. And this is kind of what, I've been talking around this the whole time is that unity is a gift. Let me read verse three again. David says that unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This, the, when it says, which falls down on the mountains of Zion, that falls down is the same word that verse two says, running down on the beard or running down on the collar of Aaron's robes. So three times that word is used to describe descending and it's because it is communicating that this is a gift of God. The third time it does that, it says it's due for a people whose story revolved around wandering 40 years in a desert wilderness do is this, this beautiful image of divine refreshment, even miraculous refreshment of God sustaining us in a fallen world. What he's describing here is that, you, that brothers dwelling in unity is not just good and pleasant, it's actually necessary. It's, it's actually part of our survival in this world. Otherwise, we just keep sawing off the branch that we are standing on. And note where it, where it says that this blessing is found. It says it is commanded on Zion in Jerusalem, aka in a New Testament era, the church. That that is where God uniquely promises his presence as common bond for his covenant people. Let me just put it this way, right? You, you've, you've been on social media. You watch the news, at least occasionally, or it 
invades your privacy one way or another, right? Do we have more disunity or unity in the world? Disunity. I know, sorry, that was a rhetorical question, but I didn't treat it that way. My bad. In that world, we need do. We need divine refreshment. Because that world is inhospitable to image-bearing. It is inhospitable and dehumanizing. It adds up and it accumulates. It's for that reason that right when, when the author of Hebrews says, do not neglect to meet together, he's saying that because the church gathered or Israel ascending in worship is where the gift of unity is given and received. It is in the body and, and bride of Christ that the peace of Christ is ordinarily experienced by grace and regularly received through faith. It's where we can behold how good and pleasant it is. We don't just have to kind of conceptually imagine it from nothing. It's where we can see it. It's where it's embodied. Now, in saying that, believe me, I know if, if family has some bad connotations, church being divine refreshment is even harder, even maybe even an even bigger hurdle. In fact, uh, there's a book that's coming out in a couple months. I highly recommend it. I've gotten a chance to look at it already. It's called The Great Dechurching. And this book is written around the single largest statistical study of dechurching ever. And what it has found is that the last over the last 30 years, over 40 million people, just in, America, just in the U.S., over 40 million people have left the church. 40 million. That's over 10% of the population of the United States has left the church in the last three decades. It's actually, and if that's true, and we have no reason to believe it isn't, that, that that's, a, that's an even bigger religious shift than the, the two great awakenings in the 18th and 19th centuries combined. That's insane. Guess what? One of the single most common reasons given for people leaving the church in this massive study with tens of thousands of people. Disunity. Disunity. That includes, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, petty division and infighting in churches. Political polarization or politics in general just not being left at the front door or even brought in and critically examined in light of Scripture, but overpowering and becoming primary over Scripture. That also includes interpersonal conflict, hostility. A church is a place of hospitality. The fact that it's hostility is damning. Brothers and sisters, dwelling together is both the antidote and the symptom of health that we need. We need Psalm 133, despite it's, it's only three verses, but in terms of our need, it may as well be 300, because that's how bad we need these short three verses. Dwelling together within the body, and blood, the body and bride of Christ is the A to Z of reversing this trend and the means and end of our experiencing a greater and deeper goodness and pleasantness in life. That's all. 
Let me see what questions we have this morning. Okay. <laughs> okay, first a comment and then a question from this person. Um, I'm an Enneagram 9, so yes, absolutely, this sermon on unity actually has me excited. Fair. I underestimated that. Um, I love Chesterton's fence quote, but the loudest voices in our culture are either blindly demolishing the fence or blindly overprotecting it. I think I may be too slow to take fences down, which may be as damaging as taking them down too quickly. What have you found helpful in the past to inspect and appropriately dismantle the fences that should be removed? So, let me, um, let me offer a clarification here that, may, that doesn't answer that question, but answers the, the question that actually is maybe even more helpful, which is... Um, The solution may not be to take down the fence. It may be to stop turning it into a wall. Does that make sense? What I mean by that is maybe the fence is not the problem, but how we're using it. And we won't know that unless we ask the question of what was its original purpose. And if the original purpose of the fence, if the reason why it was built is not the, what it's being used for, then well, the, the, our use is actually the problem, not the fence itself. Let me, let me use another word that people just, we, like our culture just loves talking about institutions, right? I know you've heard me talk about institutions. It's like, it's like Jesus, gospel, Cardinals baseball, institutions in that order. And in, <sighs> you know, it doesn't have the same ring. <laughs> it's fair. I, I really, really appreciate that actually. Um, but even I, as much as I love institutions, I'm like, yeah, I, can, I have some self-awareness. I can recognize that that's actually like less of a rallying cry than others. Um, right? Institutions are not the problem. Institutions being turned into businesses or platforms or things that they're not intended to do is a problem. The church is not the problem. The church being used as a platform for narcissistic leaders and pastors, like that's the problem because we've changed the fence and took, we've taken down some of the, uh, the, the, the posts, the fence posts, and now it's sagging, and so there isn't the kind of supportive and gracious flourishing accountability that should be there. And so, of course, when the incentives get turned upside down, it's not going to hold. The fence is actually already coming down and weakened. So I would say <laughs> if a fence, if just I'm going to really try to push the metaphor too, too hard here, if the fence has been there longer than a generation, we should have a lot more cause for tearing it down. And if it's still a problem, we should not ignore that problem or act like it's not thing, a thing or do the, what, uh, that, I guess that could be their, that would be false unity. We should pursue sibling, family, gracious calling toward unity that doesn't avoid the elephant in the room, but talks about it and brings the gospel into it. Second question. If that didn't answer your question, please let me know. Um, even though you're an Enneagram 9, I'm giving you permission. You can let me know if I didn't do it well enough. You don't have to keep the peace, okay? It takes two to tango. How do we pursue unity with siblings who won't acknowledge the brokenness in our current relationship with them? Man. 
I feel this, guys. Right? I mean, I know you, you're using, well, you may not be using siblings in the church or spiritual sense, um, but I feel that with, like, I have a brother, I love him to death, and we're not close, and it kills me. And I feel like I either, often have to either be, like, compromise, like, not just, not like who I am, but like what a healthy relationship should look like, or not really have one. And the thing that helps me in the midst of that is you all. I have siblings in Christ who I can process that with and, and even like find that satisfied and good and how pleasant in order to do the hard work of bridging that gap. So we do that two ways independence on our spiritual family in the church. And if, you're t- if this person, whoever you are, if you're talking about somebody in the church, then come find me and I'm going to help you. Like, I'll help you figure it out. Like, that's what family is for. And if it's me, then go talk to Michael and ask him to help you figure it out, okay? Like, seriously, don't. This is, this is how a family supports one another. It's by grace, this family. The second thing is, is right, Jesus says, I can't remember which gospel specifically, but he says, as far as it depends on you, go and be reconciled. You can't do anything about them. You're right. It does take two to tango. It's relationship is a give and receive. It's a take and um, give and take, right? Be faithful. You don't have to force it. With the church's support, God's grace, and that calling, just do what you can and trust the rest of God. Okay. Last question then. I'm going to pray for communion. Church disunity, like so many issues we hear about, feels so big that we can't affect change. How do we as the table try to mend it in our local context? Guess what? You're doing it. I, I don't know if I've... St- <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I've mentioned this or not, but you guys should know I brag about y'all. Uh, I brag about Jesus in and amongst us, Right? I think the table, like, we're the healthiest we've ever been as a church. We're smaller, right, than we've ever been, but, like, it is a potent remnant that we are as a church, and I glory in it. It is so encouraging. It's mostly because most of us are not on social media, so keep doing that, okay? However, it just takes work, and when we have something worth sharing and being relationally and creationally generous with, that will inform the process. Like, I know we don't, this will be the last thing I say, I promise. Like, I know we don't, um, I think we get uncomfortable saying, like, the church is awesome because it's not about us, it's, it's about Jesus, 100%. And I think we don't fully appreciate Jesus' gifts to us if we can't, if we can't savor where that gift is and how it's embodied and manifested in the church. And so I think, like, it is actually, yeah, I brag about us, because we are a gift, this family. It's beautiful. How good and how pleasant it is. Behold it. Praise God. Let me pray. Jesus. (laughs) As we're talking about family and the disunity just and chaos in the world around us, I am just struck by like how 
many reasons. How many valid, not excuses, but just robust explanations we have to be anything other than unified. It enables us to say, as David did, behold how good and how pleasant it is. It is, it is incredible, not because we've only ever experienced it, but because we, we primarily experience the opposite. Lord, it is for that reason that there must be a God big enough for that around here somewhere. So Lord, we thank you for that gift. We ask you for fuel in that calling, and we revel, Lord, as your family. We pray, Lord, in your name. Amen.